0: Hey everyone, this is Eddie Kalecki with Tim Moore reminding you that Sportspeak is now powered by SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the one-stop shop for tickets to sporting events, concerts, and so much more.
1: Use the promo code SPORTSPEAK at checkout for $20 off your first purchase.
0: SeatGeek, let there be live. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks. We're here back live on Sports Speak Live powered by SeatGeek promo code SportsSpeak all caps, one word for $20 off your first purchase. I'm Eddie Kolegi. And I'm Tim Moore. Well, the last two Sundays, we've had some big events. We've had the Super Bowl and then for NASCAR fans, our Super Bowl, the Daytona 500. And there's definitely a lot to react to from both of those events that we're going to deep dive into. Let's start with the former Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes now wins another three-time Super Bowl champ, six years in the NFL. He's made it to at least the conference championship every single year as a starter. And Kansas City pulls through at the end. The Niners had a lead. They cough it up. Some poor scheming on both sides of the ball. And Miko Hardman, who was a jet at the beginning of the season, returns to Kansas City and wins the Super Bowl with a catch in the end zone in overtime. Tim, first of all, it was a fantastic game, I'd say. Um, Really interesting to watch. Two teams that play very different styles of football, but both found success. But the Niners and Kyle Shanahan, again, proving their inability to win the big game. And Patrick Mahomes, on the other hand, really on pace to be as good as Brady or even better now with three Super Bowl rings.
1: Yeah, I've said it here on Sportspeak. You know, I truly believe when it's all said and done at the end of Patrick Mahomes' career, we're going to be labeling him as the greatest quarterback of all time. Because, you know, as great of a gunslinger Tom Brady was, right? And as accomplishments he's had, Patrick Mahomes is an athlete. And I'm not saying Tom Brady isn't an athlete, but there's just so many things that in this generation of quarterback that Patrick Mahomes can do that he's just simply sensational. And the fact of the matter is this. Um, I think they presented. And correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe it happened in the third, when they when they presented the stat. But it was the stat that every Super Bowl Patrick Mahomes has won, they were down by ten at some point in the yep. first half. So needless to say, it's not a surprise that Patrick Mahomes came back. What is surprising is it was relatively low scoring. Now, don't get me wrong, both sides were highlighted by very strong defenses. The 49ers had a top five rushing defense in the NFL. As for the Kansas City Chiefs, they were very well balanced, very uh, better stopping the pass game as they were to the rush game. But you saw a mix of styles, and really, that's you know, this is what I really love about the Super Bowl. And you forget about the two teams for a second. What makes the Super Bowl so exciting is the fact that it it kind of accumulates a season's worth of plays into big moments. And then more often than not, I mean, yes, some of the iconic plays we see from the best players, but some of the bigger plays in a game come from these role players that you don't expect coming in big moments. For example, Mecole Hardman, you mentioned started the season with the Jets, left Kansas city to take a shot at New York, ends up getting traded back. He had arguably Two biggest plays for Kansas City in that game. The game-winning touchdown and that big play in the first half that ultimately results in a fumble uh, play later from Isaiah Pacheco. But you even go back to the Super Bowl prior, you'd argue Isaiah Pacheco, who nobody expected, was arguably Kansas City's strongest uh, strongest player in the Super Bowl. So, And, and for it on the 49ers side, right? to have Jennings turn around and make great plays. He was arguably, in my opinion, the Super Bowl MVP um, on the end of the 49ers, along, of course, with Jake Moody, who was unstoppable. But at the end of the day, to so really, I mean, compared, I don't get the comparisons, first off, about why people wanted to compare this game to that New England Rams Super Bowl that was a defensive showing, not high scoring. It, there was way too many turnovers, obviously, in this game that really kind of changed momentum back and forth but to me it just shows the the personality on both sides the 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 energy this Super Bowl provided and I will say in terms of a game standpoint I am not saying this is one of the greatest Super Bowls of all time but it's definitely going to be one of the most memorable ones and congratulations to Andy Reid now after the whole narrative that he couldn't win a Super Bowl to win three uh and I'm sure he has a lot more coming I think the Kansas City Chiefs proved through all the adversity, as I said the last episode, that they can do this, you know, without receivers. If Patrick Mahomes can get through this, he can get through anything. And I know a lot of people don't like Kansas City because Taylor Swift, Patrick Mahomes has distractions left and right, and he's always in the big picture. But to win as many AFC Championship games as they have, or even to be in there every single year... You've got to admit at this point, they're a dynasty, they're a threat every year, and you just can never count them out, so congratulations to them.
0: Yeah, and this was a year where, frankly, they didn't even look that good. They looked shaky as late as Christmas against the Raiders, and they still find a way, and I mean, any doubts people had about Patrick Mahomes, those have to go away sub-arctic conditions he wins the game then two road games first two road playoff games he beats Josh Allen Lamar Jackson and then comes from behind and beats a vaunted 49ers team in the Super Bowl unfortunate for Dre Greenlaw as well that was I think a turning point in this game too to see him injured especially since it wasn't even it, in the field it, of play
1: and I was just gonna say this too you know San Francisco and this world, give them credit they did a lot of battling you know throughout the game, having to deal with injuries. Greenlaw's injury, very unfortunate. But as we found out as time went on, unfortunately, he'd really been battling that injury. So I'm not saying it was a matter of time, but it's an unfortunate scenario where he tried to play through injury and it led to his ultimate injury of the Achilles. But, you know, for the Chiefs, where I give them the most credit, it is not easy to shut down George Kittle. And the fact that they were able to limit Kittle's production I think it was what four catches for five yards. I'm just like that very tiny. I bet on him for over 50 yards. You know the fact that you were able to, to to make that production in Kansas City defensively and really put the emphasis on a Brock Purdy having to make that big play, which is my biggest criticism of Purdy, but also b you know limiting McCaffrey in that second half really is the reason why the Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl, and it also. one last point I'll make too because obviously special teams played a big part in that Super Bowl as well it is actually mind numbing to me that through all the Super Bowls we've had to this point that two 55 plus yard field goals were the longest in history I couldn't believe when that had happened because I could I could have swore it felt like we've seen more than that but it's just not the case
0: Mm -hmm. and then Jake Moody all great with the field goals and then he misses the extra point and that ended up looming very very large but Kansas City, of course, is the team to beat. The question for me, Tim, is where does San Francisco go from here? Because now this is the second time in four years they've lost to the Chiefs, and a lot of questions about Kyle Shanahan's game management, the defense in late-game big-time situations, and then, of course, the quarterback play. I mean, I don't think Brock Purdy necessarily played a bad game, but this is a team that we've talked about. It They have a plug-and-play quarterback system. I think Purdy is an improvement from Jimmy Garoppolo. We had that debate last episode, but... It's clear no matter how many weapons the Niners have, quarterback play is what this came down to. Patrick Mahomes, frankly, does not have much to work with besides Travis Kelsey, and even his offensive line was banged up. The Niners have a good O-line, best running back in football, really good receiving tandem, and a top-five tight end. But quarterback play at the end, Mahomes was the better QB than Purdy. And now I really wonder where San Francisco goes from here because they're clearly a team that with the talent all across that roster, they are more than capable of contending for championships, but they just can't close the deal. And at this point, that's become sort of the narrative for Kyle Shanahan throughout his entire NFL career.
1: Yeah, no, it absolutely has been. And it really to me really stems down to the fact of what I argued was true on the last episode was is that. You need a quarterback that can make that explosive play down the field. What made Brock Purdy in the playoffs, and might, might I add too, in the Super Bowl, let's be honest, Brock Purdy still, even though he didn't produce that big play, did play his best game of the entire playoffs, at least of the three. But the fact of the matter is that if you're not going to be able to throw downfield, challenge defenders, you're not going to be able to open up the box, open up areas. And to me, that's what really to be honest with you even with Jimmy Garoppolo and going all the way back to past quarterbacks for San Francisco that is what they've been missing and I get that's not easy to find it's not easy to find a top-notch quarterback but we're really in an era unfortunately right now in the NFL where elite quarterbacks are starting to become harder to find again you know there's a lot of very good athletic quarterbacks there's a lot of them that have arms like Josh Allen and so on but To find somebody that's explosive and accurate, I think it's fair to say at the end of the year, as much as I know I ragged maybe on Brock Purdy on this last episode about me not believing that he can make a big play. It is fair to say, based on statistics, he is a solid mid-tier quarterback at best, but the 49ers, and why I'm confused with their direction, listen, they're going to continue to be a playoff team. They have that talent. Can they bring back some of these guys is really the ultimate big question. But I don't know how you can advance to the next step from Brock Purdy without having to make an aggressive trade. And if you're any team that is the league quarterback, I don't see you moving on for somebody like Brock Purdy if Brock Purdy's involved in a trade. So to me, it's like it's a catch 101. But I think the 49ers just have to keep on getting – uh, weapons. That's the only that's the only way I could say that offensively. I think you mean a catch people... 22.
0: I think you mean a catch 22 I don't know what a catch one-on-one is, Tim.
1: Whatever, whatever. catch 22, <laughs> whatever. My, my apologies. But the point is, is either way, it's you, you know what I'm saying? I, I just don't see any possible way how they can move on from this. And I'm not saying that they're gonna regress next season. I think the 49ers are gonna continue to always be good. It's just the fact of the matter of it comes down to one position. And it feels like that, for example, for the New York Jets, right, where I feel like they have a really good defense, a complementary offense. They're just missing that quarterback. Granted, I know they haven't been to the playoffs in forever and the 49ers' have. but there's a couple teams like this in the NFL that have those pieces and just can't put it together. And unfortunately, the 49ers are one of those that they can get far, but they can't get in that big moment because they need that guy.
0: Yeah. And now there's a lot of teams that are going to be using this offseason as a reset draft is two months away. Franchise tagging window also open now for the next two weeks. Expect some moves there uh, in terms of the Super Bowl presentation. Tim, uh halftime concert from Usher, I'd say, was iffy. I, I, I was hoping for more recognizable songs from him because he does have them. And it seems like we didn't really see them. I loved seeing little John uh, perform. No real commercials that stood out. And I don't know. I put on some of the clips from the Nickelodeon broadcast. It seemed pretty good. And I'm starting to think I might prefer Patrick Starr over Tony Roma.
1: Yeah, you know, the, the Nickelodeon broadcast was relatively nice from the clips I was able to see. But I agree with you in regards to the commercials. I think I mean we watched it as a group with everybody. There was only two commercials that we really reacted to. The the, the Bud Light commercial, or was it course, Bud, whichever commercial it was. I don't remember one of the one of the lights. And as well as the DoorDash commercial, it was very creative. Other than that, there was no commercials we're like, wow, that's impressive this year, which was really unfortunate. And I'm going to be honest with you, um, because we we're doing our NASCAR pick them draft at the same time. We muted the halftime show, so I can't speak on that um, in regards to the concert. Um, but from fan reaction, a lot of people liked it. So I, I guess there's that. And I think there was also a little bit of backlash because people wanted to see Justin Bieber, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes,
0: just yes. I was him. at a Super Bowl party where there were people who were clamoring for Justin Bieber and he did not come out.
1: So I would say it's a Super Bowl disaster, but overall, I mean, still the fact that it's a successful Super Bowl regardless of what happens in the halftime show because you have Taylor Swift involved, which is the big thing. So, again, I think on, on field play, this was an A-plus for a Super Bowl, um, just everything else around it, which to me, I like when it feels like a football game because that's what I loved about the playoff games this year. Even with the line falling apart to San Francisco and so on, you felt involved in the game from start to finish, and I felt that same exactly at the Super Bowl as compared to past years.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think it was a, a very good Super Bowl, both on and off the field. I just wish Tony Romo maybe didn't cut off Jim Nance on his uh, game-winning touchdown call. Um, and then the, did you see the thing where he was like singing along to Adele going to break? I mean, what are we doing here? But uh, I digress on that point. But congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs, who are Super Bowl champs once again, and also repeat as champs. First time we've seen that in the NFL since the Pats can did that I, in two I, decades. cool
1: one-second break as well. CBS, you got to change the broadcast stuff at some point for the tickers and, and the scoreboard. It's unoriginal. It's getting boring, and everybody's complaining about it. Yeah. Please, I'd rather have Fox or NBC, even ESPN at this point do the Super Bowl. It's got to be something different. And well, and they
0: made a new ticker for the Super Bowl and a new graphic scorebox thing, and it looks worse than the one they originally had. That's something I don't understand either. Why does every network have to make new graphics for the Super Bowl? You've had a good one all year, and then you're just going to abandon it for the game. It's just it's weird because now we saw for years where the felt like the scoreboxes were like insane. Fox had a crazy one a few years ago, and then now everybody's trying to oversimplify things. There's been all the critiques of the NBA on ESPN, how it's literally just the comic sans of the uh, three letters um, of team names. And then you've just got the the color coordinated things. It looks awful, but it's like, yeah, I agree with you on that. Let's go to another big event that I know there's probably some uh, talk about its coverage the Daytona 500 just happened. Uh, first of all, NASCAR just simply cannot catch a break with weather. You get the clash that has to be moved to a Saturday. Then you have no racing Saturday or Sunday because of rain in Daytona. So you got to do a double header on Monday. Before we get to the race, let's talk about the Fox coverage for a second, which I was watching it with our uh, contributor, Adam Tropper. Um, by the way, that's we do our uh, weekly picks now on the Motorsports Today Twitter at MTRSPRTS today. Drew got uh, William Byron correct in the Daytona 500. We'll talk about that finish in a few minutes because I know there's some controversy there. I think generally it was a good race, but me and Schropper both said, we felt like this was the best Fox broadcast of a NASCAR race since before the pandemic because uh, there was very few on your bingo board. You thought there was going to be all the shots of the little kids randomly, and they didn't do that. Um, the crank it Only three? Started... Times. Yes. Only three? I, I, I,
1: crank... I found it.
0: The crank it up segment was really weird on pit road, but I do like that. They were trying to do something a little bit different. Mike Joyce sounded pretty good on the broadcast. I'd say Kevin Harvick really impresses me as an analyst and maybe it's nice and refreshing to have someone who's actually driven the next gen car that has a bit more familiarity with it. But I really liked him in the booth. I like him better than Boyer certainly. And I honestly liked him better than Jeff Gordon when he was an analyst. Clint Boyer is still Clint Boyer. Um, but I think in general, the coverage was good. The way they covered the big one, too, with the replays of all the different in-car angles and how the drivers were getting off the wheel, I think was really good for the Daytona 500, which is supposed to be sort of an introductory educational broadcast for the beginning of a season to try to hook in new fans. And I kind of like the way they did that. But still, I mean, three laps into the race, there's a third lane being formed on the outside, led by Ross Chastain and Kyle Bush. And Mike Joy's talking about it for half a lap and they don't show it. And instead, it's just all these bumper on on onboard cams and, you know, final lap of the race and final lap of a stage. You're just like looking on on onboards of Daniel Suarez in fifth place. It's like, I, I I still have questions about that. But I think in general, for the overall production quality, especially with the race having to be moved to a Monday, it felt like Fox kind of stepped it up from what we saw last year
1: yeah no i will say this and i 100 percent agree with both you and chopper in this regard i think that from a fox standpoint this was most definitely one of the better 500s to watch in a very long time and arguably their best production um that we've seen since definitely before the pandemic uh, overall in terms of what we saw and my my criticisms of fox obviously yes the crank it up in the pits very very weird the overall cutting of cameras especially when that big crash happened on lap six where it felt like my joy it said oh crash like three seconds and then they couldn't pick it up until well after it happened was a little bit frustrating but overall i mean to me what makes Daytona Weekend and what I used to love about Speed Weeks so and why, for example, and I I don't remember if it was a last one, but maybe we were talking about on Motorsports Today where we were talking about how Dale Jr. talked about wanting to bring the clash back to Daytona, setting the tempo for Speed Weeks. The Daytona 500 was actually beyond expectations my opinion from a racing standpoint that I, I don't know if it's because the arca and the truck race set the standards so low that it didn't feel like it can get any worse and to be truthfully honest with you i wish the xfinity race wasn't the main event because the daytona 500 truthfully was and was completely withstood the rest of the races of being the best racing in my opinion throughout the weekend but the fact of the matter is is that to me, overall, weekend-wise, it felt like Fox started slow with its arc coverage and its truck coverage and picked it up for the 500, but there's still a lot of key elements that's missing. But if there's one thing that really ultimately ticks me off that has nothing to do with the broadcast, it's once I found that in the Xfinity race— I cannot believe Fox doesn't have a setup at the racetrack for Larry McReynolds. It ticks me off. Why is Larry Mack not in the booth? Larry Mack should be in the booth. And I listen, I love Quint Boyer. I agree with you. He's there for the comedic act, just like how Daryl Waltrip was. But Daryl Waltrip also had a good bit of a personality, which is what makes him different. You know, Kevin Harvick was great, but For me, Larry Mack, to say that he can't crew chief a race that he signed up for for the Xfinity Series for Jordan Anderson just because he has to go back to Charlotte to work the booth, why couldn't they set something up? That that blows my mind.
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, it makes really no sense at this point. And it's like he's very open that he's willing to travel. And for whatever reason, Fox does not want him doing that. And they're trying to relegate him to being in Charlotte. So it's like why and and now that it's infringing on him having the ability to crew chief for jordan anderson racing which let's be honest with the way things have gone it's basically a family team for him at this point and he's not allowed to be part of that um is crazy now also the whole other thing with the xfinity race andy petrie's in the booth and that was really awkward the fact that it came down yeah, to that, Austin and Sheldon I,
1: where did i miss that when did andy petrie become part of the fox team He's been because part of the Fox
0: team for a couple of years, but hasn't done much for them. He, I he, I don't think he called any races. He's been on Race Hub, but because the Cup guys just ran the 500, they needed to scramble and find announcers. So they pulled him and Michael Waltrip up to uh, the Xfinity booth.
1: Yeah, because that completely off guard. I'm like, Andy Petrie's in the booth? What's going on here? Like, is ESPN taking coverage all over again?
0: Yeah, I, which was refreshing to hear, but it was also really awkward yeah. given what happened last october and since those were the two cars that finished first and second but let's get your take here on the alex bowman william byron debacle from a alex bowman fan because there's there's two prongs to this let's first start with the big wreck which uh you had a big argument in a group chat with uh tyler glass about this and i'm kind of on his side here now william byron i think should be able to handle that push but it's Alex Bowman who set off the big wreck by slamming into the back of Byron. And it was not completely centered. I know you guys are showing disputing screenshots. It was not completely centered. And with the way the cars are, and everybody was very jittery and chattery, especially those last couple of laps when it really got intense with Logano and Chastain battling for the lead. I mean, me and Trapper were getting nervous because we're like, oh my God, these are the two most prone to cause accidents at the very front of the field. And then it ends up being Alex Bowman with a shot to his teammate that triggers the big one. So I know you feel differently about it, but at least to me, this, the blame for the big one should lie more in the hands of the 48 than the 24.
1: Well, I see, I see it two ways. I see it as product of racing. Of course, I think Joe Logano said it best. that They probably all should have wrecked 30 laps before that. Anyways, but if you take a look at the first push, right, and that's where I agree, the first push, the 48 was off-centered with whatever. But if you look in the onboard cam, they then adjust the camera to pan it out so you could see more of the left of the car, thus making it A, not look off-centered. But the 48 was a lot more further in. The first shove came with a lot of force. The second one came with barely any force. And coming from a driver's perspective and getting to getting to experience a couple of things, at least from the sense of eye racing, which... I'm not saying is exactly like real life, but in terms of the plate track feel and everything, has had a good comparison. I just simply think that where Willie and Byron deserve a little bit of responsibility is that in that scenario, he is seeing the 22 start to pinch down. And it's not that Willie is trying to squeeze in between. He's seeing the 22 close, and he's trying to stay on the right rear of the six. So as a result, he's slowly pulling left which is my point of where the 48 gives them a slight tap. It's not that the tap was egregious enough to upset the car. It's that William Byron's hands were in position to take that push. So as soon as he got that push, his wheel wasn't centered, and he immediately went out of control, went slightly up, tried to correct it, and then boom, down in the track and wrecked everybody. So it just comes from the point of it was wrong place, wrong time for William Byron to get the push, which I agree with. But it's just more the standpoint of, to me, it's not Bowman wrecking the field. It's that Byron was just not ready to take a push at that given moment, considering he had just received a stronger push about two seconds before that. And that's what ultimately led uh, to the chaos. So it's not that I'm saying it's not the 48's fault. It's just that from being the leader and trying to make an adjustment, Bowman's push wasn't bad. It was almost practically centered. It's just the 24 wasn't prepared for that push, and it led to chaos. And again, I'm not saying it's Byron's fault. It just happened to be wrong place, wrong time.
0: So now we get to the finish here, where Alex Bowman was charging, wreck happens, you could split the blame on Lejoy and Sindrick for that. But the wreck happens as they're coming through the trial bowl to the white flag, and then the caution lights come on. Kinda late. Now, I think I-, I think I'm not too upset with the fact that it was after the white because that's really tough to get that reaction time in instantaneously. But you're coming down to some weird aerial camera and trying to time that up with the the caution lights to decide who the winner of the most important races. And my problem is it's just so frustrating because I don't really know where the solution lies at this point. Because if you go back to say how it was pre-2005 there's going to be a lot of people complaining because you get a caution with four laps to go well that's the end of the race that's how dalen hart senior won his daytona 500 then you'll have the people oh you just got to race it back but then you're asking for danger if there's a situation there or you do something like this but then you're going down to these scoring loops timing loops and it turns out we're not even going by that we're going by when the caution lights came on and how that goes with the aerial camera it's like if there's no clarity about how you know who won the most important event of the season it's really a bad look for the sport and after what was a great race that was very clean despite besides the two wrecks excellent racing some of the best we've seen with the next gen car to see it end in this fashion really controversial and you know but congratulations to William Byron at least for Hendrick Motorsports they were going to get a win either way but I do feel for Alex Bowman and any Bowman fans because it's just weird how it all shakes out. And, you know, based on the timing and the reaction time of someone pressing a button, can determine who the winner of a race is, especially when the margins are so close at Daytona.
1: Well, I think the big backlash is to somebody posted today a comparison accident. And correct me, because I don't remember specifically what year it was, but it was in a truck race. Oh, uh, when John Hunter was still in the four and practically in the same exact spot they had wrecked and they called the caution in time well, well before they even got to the line and had a green white checkered afterward. To me, I'm not I'm not gonna be critical on NASCAR in regards to the fact that they got to the button late, right? What concerns me and what led to my video yesterday, and for the record, William Byron won the Daytona 500. I'm not denying that based on aerial view 30. I agree at the time of the light, you see William Byron just ahead of Bowman. The problem is, is that if this wreck happens anywhere else on the racetrack, they are deciding on when a delayed caution light is going to display. And today NASCAR had a video, Steve Littart, gave an explanation, which only really, to be honest with you, further sends me more into confusion. Because what he described it as based on the rule is that, A, when the first light, whatever the first caution light is to signal, will signal the stop of the race. Or if for some reason that that display fails, it'll be as soon as the flag man displays his flag. So ultimately meaning, if let's say NASCAR has a complete issue at right? You are telling me that if none of the lights signal and the flag man dropped the yellow flag, you're going to have a camera ready if they're halfway down the back stretch when this happens yep. to figure out exactly who's where. So to me again, yes, NASCAR has things timestamped, but my solution to fixing this for NASCAR is just simple. If you're going to have things timestamped, You've got to have it queued, and I'll. This is where I'll give. If you want to talk about the difference from Fox. Fox in twenty twenty one had this quote unquote queued up when Michael McDowell won his victory. The problem is I proved that wrong because based on the finishing results, you're telling me if they freeze the field, Kyle Larson and Denny Hamlin's incident happens nearly three to four seconds after the caution comes out, and they were not involved in that wreck uh, in the turn three. So they were penalized ultimately for that. Then he finishes fifth instead of fourth, um, or uh, excuse me, well, he ends up finishing fifth, but he gets passed by Kevin Arvik instead of being ahead of him. And Kyle Larson, who was fourth, ends up finishing tenth because he cut down a tire, never wrecked, might I add, but maintained pace speed as he, he continued against the wall. So it's there's little bits of discrepancies. Another person, by the way, that I should mention should be more frustrated than anybody yesterday should be Brad Kislowski in RFK. Because when you looked at what happened with David Reagan, David Reagan went around in that accident, right? He spun around, reestablished himself in front of Chase Elliott, who, yes, wasn't a part of the crash. So I get NASCAR ruling him ahead of him. But he continued to and reestablish himself at Pace Speed, well ahead of the cars that were beyond behind the accident and damage from the previous incident. And he was ruled in 20th behind those drivers. So my point is more of that NASCAR needs to be clear, and this is a common issue, uh overall for NASCAR where there is not clarity and a lot of their rules and explanations and to me the only way you can do this and have a perfect timestamp that's cued from the start of the race with your cameras and have it have it cued with your live scoring because you cannot depend on a delay of a light in my opinion only in these styles of races do you really ever see it happen but you can't let a light decide or maybe even the flagman, if things fail decide on who gets a victory because there's no accurate way of representing it nascar just happened to get very lucky they were in the right place at the right time this time around but it'll raise a lot of questions in the future and definitely uh, definitely there's a lot of arguments to be made based on the results because of that issue in my opinion
0: but congrats to Byron on the victory. He's established quite a resume here over the last two years or so after a slow start to his Cup career. Uh, Last topic I want to get to quickly here, NBA. First of all, gut reaction with Jock Vaughn out as Brooklyn Nets coach. Move that had to be done. I liked him at first. I was glad they gave him a shot because he did a decent job as the interim in the bubble, but clear he is – Not really up to speed with the current NBA, it feels like, especially when it comes to rotational management with this Nets roster and uh, especially game management and timeouts late in games cost the Nets several games and caused them to lose some late leads in the fourth quarter. Giving Kevin Ali a chance, I mean, he's a proven winner. He won a national championship in UConn. He's familiar with the system because he's been an assistant of Jacques Vaughn over the last year and a half, so I do like that move. Uh, But the NBA All-Star weekend, it's crazy to see – how this sport has fallen. The three-point contest was great. I enjoyed that a lot. And the Steph Curry and Sabrina Ionescu thing, I think was really cool but the dunk contest and the all-star game have fallen so hard. The fact that you've got 213 points being scored by a team in the all-star game, Carl Anthony Towns scoring 50 points in a losing effort in the all-star game. You got, I put it on for two minutes and Luka Doncic chucks up a three quarter court shot in the middle of the third quarter. Like this is ridiculous. And it's like, I don't understand why Adam Silver went away from the format of the last couple of years with the target score in the fourth quarter, because at least that incentivized defense. But there clearly needs to be something done to incentivize the All-Star game at all. Because it feels like now, of the four major sports, Major League Baseball is the only one that has an all-star game that kind of matters. And even that, I feel like, is dwindling. But the NBA, this is getting completely asinine at this point. I mean, nobody's trying in this game. Players don't care. Anthony Edwards is openly saying, you know, it doesn't matter to the players. you got to incentivize them in some way. So whether that's home court in the NBA finals or something else or, you know, money for the winning team – You got to have something there or else you're going to get whatever that was, which wasn't even a pickup game. And then you have the dunk contest where – I mean, shout out to Mac McClung. He's won back-to-back. He's an incredible dunker. But you got to bring in someone from the G League, have him dunk, and then he gets relegated back to the G League. He's not even getting a chance on an NBA roster. And Jalen Brown is jumping over Kai Sennett sitting in a chair or wearing a Michael Jackson glove on his left hand to show that he can go left. And Jacob Toppin gets robbed from being in the finals of the dunk contest because the judges are completely out of touch. It's really bad. And to see where the sport was six, seven, eight years ago, even at the height of the Cavs warriors dynasties, where it was a crash course collision course for the same two teams to meet in the finals every year, the sport was still in a much better place than where it is now. And the all-star game is a complete total example of how Adam Silver has kind of mismanaged things and maybe let things get out of hand a bit.
1: Yeah. It's just as simple as this, in my opinion, you want these guys to play. You want it to be meaningful. And incentivize it, make there be pay in money. The NBA is a business after all, right? That money has been the center of everything and the center of discussion now for the last few years, which is why you're seeing all these differences in cap now this year. So to me, overall, the the, the first off, you mentioned a dunk contest. That was probably the most embarrassing thing I've watched in a very long time. The fact that Jalen Brown even made the finals off of what I would consider best you know 45 to 46 rated dunks you know we were live like rating all these dunks just because he did theatrics to me is an absolute joke penalizing people that were doing difficult dunks not getting it on the first time to me is an absolute joke. and no discredit to McClung McClung was easily the best dunker there he he deserved to get that credit and win back to backs but that's all you need to know in regards to the fact that a G League player ultimately won the dunking the dunk contest. You couldn't get a superstar. You couldn't get whatever. And you know, yes, were they very critical on the broadcast, at least the announcers, bashing it doesn't help the situation exactly, but It's more the fact that it's getting out of control. And to me, you know, I thought maybe, you know, Team LeBron versus, you know, Team Giannis in the past and so on, right, was a very good idea. Incentivizing, you know, the further shots, making, you know, four-point shots and so on was a really good idea just to make it feel a little bit different. But when it's all said and done, if it doesn't feel like a regular basketball game, if it doesn't feel like it has meaning, Nobody wants to be there, and this, this is where you say about MLB, right? People try in the home run derby. Why? There's money on the line if you win the home run derby. I actually don't even know if there's even money on the line outside of the trophy if you win the dunk contest or the three point contest. You know, yeah, I guess you can the bonuses. Whatever the point is, is that if you put money on the line for these things and make players want to earn bonuses. There'll be a lot of people ringing your phone wanting to be there, making your decisions harder. But the NBA is at a point where these superstars don't want to be a part of it. And they're being very vocal about it, might I add, saying, hey, I'd like to be a part of it, but there's no benefit. I'm just risking myself if I do this. So to me, hey, the players, not to be there. What's up down the line? Hey, if you're on the all star team and you win, you get, you know, let's say 1.5 million each that sounds great. The NBA has that money. Should it not, you know, and yeah, of course, maybe you pay the losing players, 500,000, whatever it is. But the whole point is put finances on the line and allow them to make money and you'll have the best game of the weekend. Maybe even the whole year I can guarantee it. Yeah.
0: Good stuff. Uh, When we come back next time, I mean, major league baseball's in spring training, pitchers and catchers, everybody's reported by now, NBA playoff push and March Madness is right around the corner, so we'll have all of that to talk about. But until next time, signing off here of Sports Speak Live episode 165, I'm Eddie Kaleggi. And I'm Tim Moore. We'll talk to you next week. Enjoy this week in sports.